Welcome to Live Free, Ride Free, where we talk to people who have lived self-actualized lives on their own terms and find out how they got there, what they do, how we can get there, what we can learn from them, how to live our best lives, find our own definition of success, and most importantly, find joy. I'm your host, Rupert Isaacson, New York Times best-selling author of The Horse Boy, founder of New Trails Learning Systems and LongRideHome.com. You can find details of all our programs and shows on RupertIsaacson.com. Welcome back to Live Free, Ride Free, where we talk to people who are living self-actualized lives, people who are effectively living the dream. How have they managed to do it? What does it mean for them, their dream? What can we learn from them? How can mentorship from them help us to achieve our dreams too and to live free and ride free in the way that's right for us? So today I've got Lisa Dearson. Lisa Dearson runs something rather unique called the Equus Film Festival. That's right. It's a film festival dedicated to telling stories through the medium of the horse. And people might think, well, that's a bit niche. That's a bit, you know, but actually, no, it's one of those worlds that crosses over into so many other worlds because there's so many people that like horses and yet there's so many people that like film and there's so many people that like story and there's so many people that are either on the fringe of that or right in the middle of it. You, if you, if you look up any list of Hollywooders, you'll see that at least half of them are into horses in some way. and. If you like, the horse represents, I think, to humans, an idea of dream, an idea of allegory, an idea of a lot of people think about horses and use terminology around horses. Oh, she's a real stallion. Oh, you know, he, he's a bit of a wild stallion. Oh, you know, oh, rein, rein in that thought, curb your enthusiasm. Yeah. All of these things actually come from horses and um, something like Equus Film Festival sits square in the middle of, I think, what horses mean as a metaphor for humans. But Lisa Dearson's made an absolute success out of this. Lisa, thank you for coming on the show. Hey, Rupert. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's, 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 it's such a, a treat. Lisa, I've known you for quite a while. <laughs> or something like that. Um, I, like. I remember when we were meeting at horse shows. Both of us are enthusiasts of the Lusitano horse breed. And then I remember you saying, oh yeah, I've got this idea. I, I think I want to do this film festival. And yeah, it won't be, it won't be you know, anything big. It's just, yeah, I just kind of want to give it a go. And now it's huge and it's international. So tell us how you got there. Why, 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 why did you come up with this idea? You, simply <laughs> put. <laughs> you... And your documentary about your son were the reason that this film festival got started. And, and yeah, going back and thinking back at the Andalusian show in Texas and seeing your film the first time. And I remember being so moved because it, it lit me up, literally, because I felt that, wow, here's what's missing in in the world people don't feel enough empathy for what someone else is going through whether it's the family unit what you all went through now with 
us with Josh because I have a Down syndrome grandson who we've made a documentary about as well. The general public doesn't doesn't have that empathy when they see a family with a crying, screaming child. They automatically think, oh, something's wrong with those parents or get that kid in line. And when I saw your documentary and I saw the struggle, which it truly was at that time, a, a struggle because it's a journey that's led you so many places. I went, oh my gosh, I want everybody I know to see this film because it, it, the story is so important and not because it was a horse story because of course I love it because it's a horse story, but mainly because of the, the deeper felt message and kind of what you were talking about earlier, you know, I, how many films we've had in the festival that center around mental health issues, physical limitations, veterans who, who contemplate committing suicide, a youth in crisis, all of these, this general public encompassing our world of people in crisis. And what's the thing that's out there to help all of them? It's the horse and it's telling those stories with the horses. And, the, and we've had so many of those documentaries in the festival and they're so powerful. No matter where I show them or when I show them, people leave in tears because of the power of that. So that's, that was the catalyst that made the whole festival start. Simply put, you. Huh. Well, you're very kind. And, you know, it was, Amazing of you to, to have us there with the Horseboy movie at the, at the first, at the first film festival in New York, but there must have always been in your mind oh. since you were a little girl, something around story and horse. Take us back to when you were small. Did you have an idea like this was something cooking? Or was it an amalgam of, of other ideas? What, what, what started it all off? Uh, oh, I, well, I've always, always been around horses. My grandmother had horses, a pony. I always had a little pony. Sparkplug was my first pony's name. And where did you grow uh, up, by the way, Lisa? I grew up outside of Chicago in a, in a suburb called the Grange, but my parents' family lived down in Kentucky. So on my grandmother's farm, every summer we'd go down and spend time with the, with her at the farm and the horses and, and the pony and, uh, you know, always being around and we would always take this pony out, create games and tell stories and create little alternate towns and things to do. And you know, we were different people with those, with the pony and to tell st storytelling. I think somewhere in the back of my mind, always wanting to tell tell stories or at least share stories has something that's I've always kind of always wanted to always had back there percolating and kind of life gets in the way and I ended up in the engineering field of all things well, for quite a while and then building houses and the horses were always the constant. I always either had a horse or was riding or involved with horses, involved with teaching young people with pony club. I went through many years of being an unmounted pony club instructor for all the D level for very, oh, there's the Jack Russell. 
for a, for a long time. And then it's just always has been there, bringing people together around horses. What do you think it is about the horse that serves as this uh, catalytic factor with humans? Because it, it, does, it seems that people don't even need to ride to have a fascination. Right. Right. And I, what is it, do you think? Well, first of all, I believe that it's a 1200 pound electromagnetic field drawing us in. And it's also a 1200 pound metaphor for everything that's in our life. But I, even with my friends, I had, and I had quite a few friends that just have a horse to have that horse and they, they go and they'll brush the horse at night. They'll, do stuff with the horse, the long line, they'll, they'll do everything but ride the horse. And that's okay for them. There's entire Facebook groups dedicated to people who are just the non-ridden horse. And everybody thinks that it, you have to be in the horse to, you have to ride the horse to be in the horses. And that's so wrong. One of the things with the film festival is people thought, well, you know, the, the non, there's only so many non are out there horse people riding and they don't have hours in the day. There's so many non riding horse people that are moved by these stories and that magnetism of the horse that just draws them in from watching Misty of Shink Tea when we were kids and all of those stories. There's just, we talk, this is funny that you say that because we talk about this all the time. It's up, it's part of our general conversation. When we have our Mustang summits or whatever, there's just something about these horses. And when we use horses in the mental health field and you see the results that you can't get anywhere else with any other metaphor, tool, or just even simple talk therapy, you can't get there where you can get there with a horse. Talk to me about this business of being in an electromagnetic field. That's fascinating. Okay, so you say the horse is a 1,200-pound electromagnetic field. How so, and how does that benefit people? So when we're around another human, basically, you're, you're equal. We're both, we're, you know, you're, whether it's a big person or a little person, basically your weights are 120, 130 pounds to each other. You bring a horse in, it's 10 times what energy and, and feeling that we are. So I think that they, I just think they help balance us that way. It's, you what, can't. What is, what is throwing out that electromagnetic field that you're referring to? What do I, I, well, I just think it's an, I just think it's pure energy. I think mm -hmm. I, I can watch a horse across an arena at a horse. You can do this at a horse show. Watch a horse. One horse goes crazy. Everybody around it feels it. And if you're a, a, a more sensitive person, Temple Grandin comes to mind. People who are really sensitive can feel that. When you get, when you're working with horses a lot, you can feel when a horse is un uncomfortable. You can feel that kind of wave that a mare standing in a field with a bunch of other mares and babies. When that coyote is out across at the, at the corner of the field, that one mare turns up, looks, and everyone can feel that just by her, her simple head, bring your head up. It's just, the, it's very forceful. 
what, the energy of the horse. Yeah, what I'm what I'm wondering about is I'm, you're probably aware of this. I, I know that there's a, an organization, research institute called the Heart Math Institute, which has been mm-hmm. doing yep. research into the electromagnetic fields thrown out by hearts of one kind or another, and yep. finding that the sort of the larger the heart, the greater the electromagnetic field it throws mm-hmm. out. If our heart, if our relatively small hearts throw out a certain electromagnetic field this huge heart throws out a much bigger one. Yes. How, how do you feel that that benefits a human to be in the presence of a greater electromagnetic field coming from a larger heart? I think it's, especially with animals, because when we, the bigger the electromagnetic field is going to be the bigger animal, definitely. But if they're sentient animals, like a horse or an elephant or a, a peaceful a peaceful animal they're going to bring that peaceful energy to you and i see it from when i used to do work in the equine assisted therapy field you what would happen when a horse would be around someone in crisis it it's undeniable you can't you can't work with someone and and be in a in an equine assisted whether it's psychotherapy or just general therapy situation and deny what happens between a person and a horse. And I think it's just because the horses are just, you can't go into an arena working with a horse in a equine assisted therapy setting with a bad attitude because the horse is going to just turn around and blow you off. It will just ignore you. I mean, I've seen so many amazing things happen in therapy sessions that, uh, I mean, they've, you know, they're books and films about it. They're, it's just undeniable. I mean, what happened with your son? It's how do you explain that? Well, sure. And, you know, when, when my son in the early days would just lie on Betsy, that was the mare he became close to, he would lie on her back. This is before we even started riding together. And he would use her body like a big old cow. And all of his agitated behaviors would just disappear. And I had no idea why until some years later, even after we had been practicing, you know, horseboy method and so on, then I, I think it was Linda Tellington Jones who, who came along and said, oh yes, the Heart Math Institute, you, you put your heart into the close range heart to heart with a much greater electro. And it's interesting that you say a peaceful animal, because of course, I guess you could mm-hmm. say, you know, an, an angry polar bear might not be quite so you know, good for us no. and a different type of hug. And uh, this seems to bring our hearts into what they call coherence, meaning that the, the way in which the rhythms of the ventricles as they're pumping become much more stable, slow down. And that seems to bring our brain waves down at the same time, because of course, hearts are composed of neurons. The gut is composed of neurons and the brain is composed of neurons. So it seems to then bring one from that sort of busy brain, the beta brain, you know, to, to more of an alpha meditative brain state because I didn't know any of this at the time I just you know observed it but it was very interesting when it was explained to me you you said something else though about the horse's metaphor which I really like and I presume that to understand the horse as a metaphor you don't necessarily even have to be a horse person what what do you feel horses are as a metaphor for humans I think it depends on the human and what the human is going through whether uh, for me the the horse is Actually, I think a metaphor of I can do it, you know, 
possibility. Like nothing's too big. Uh, yeah, possibility, possibility, perfect word for a, a veteran who's just handed a, a letter to a therapist that said, "In before I got into the sequine program, I was thinking about committing suicide." That horse could be a metaphor for for living and for life and for you know surviving. And we're doing it's so funny, and I love I've watched in the last. 30 years, how all of these, these people who were considered fringe before, but now that the science is balancing with the knowledge and, and it's all coming together, even when EGALA, when Equine Assisted Growth and Learning Association started, it was not considered what it is now, which is a, a gold standard for the equine therapy field. And in the psychology field. So I've watched all of this kind of these pieces come together and, and now the, the general public and even non-horse people are getting an understanding. You know, when, when I ha have a conversation with someone who works for the Veterans Administration in their recreational therapy department, because that's what equine-assisted therapy is generally considered with the VA, it's still considered recreational therapy until there's enough research and data and study that comes in through accredited resources that they'll be able to actually bring it in as a therapeutic use with veterans. But we all know, everyone who's been out there, and especially now with the Mustangs, because we're doing so much more with Mustang horses, watching how, because of the PTSD that the Mustang horse goes through, balancing with the PS PTSD that veterans go through, whether it's an accredited program or not, those programs work. You're talking and, about and the, 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 the trauma that Mustang goes through in being captured yes. in the wild. And yes, yes. And, or even being yeah. separated because they're family-based, the mm -hmm. herds are... I mean, there's a huge movement going on right now to stop the helicopter rounds. There's actually a bill in Congress Colorado is the first state that passed legislature to, they have an entire organization or group now that's, and funding that's going to be dedicated to taking care of the, what the Mustang issue is going on in Colorado. So, and these horses form family bands. So they're going through trauma as they're getting torn apart and the mares and the foals are getting separated and all of that. But that balances what the veterans go through and it, that, that works. And it doesn't have to be a PATH or an EGALA certified program with, with veterans. It seems to be that as long as a group of veterans have gotten together with their horses and they work with each other, if you're stopping someone from committing suicide, something is working. Absolutely. And, and something is working with the horse. But when you talk about the heart math, that's... And that's another thing that was considered kind of fringe until just recently. Mm. We're doing a lot of, in fact, next week we'll be filming in Indiana, or the first, first week of July, we'll be filming in Indiana for a, where we're using brain-based neuropathway release work with Mustangs and for our, our documentary series, the Mustang Story documentary series that we started two years ago. And it works when you watch these horses. 
in this program. It, it's just amazing how well it works waiting for those dopamine and serotonin hits and teaching the horses how to give themselves those dopamine and serotonin hits, which changes the, which changes the whole training. You know, there's people out there doing amazing work, which is one of the, I feel that with the film festival or with what I do just in general is I kind of act as a connector for all of these stories and things out there that either are, are brought to me or we find or we help get those stories out to everybody else who has no idea. There's still people who I refer your documentary to that sit after they watch it and go, I had no idea. I had no idea. And now they know. And once you see, you can't unsee. So now you know that horses can do this. So it, you're moved to continue to tell that, tell people about all the things that horses can do. So what you're really talking about with, with the film festival, of course, is, is the healing power of story. In, in your case, the stories happen to be about horses, but I guess story, you know, people talk about us as, or, or, or the name for our species is Homo sapiens sapiens, the thinking ape. But I've always thought that was a rather asinine <laughs> title for us because everything thinks, right? If you have a brain, you think it's nothing special about our species that way, but we do have a larynx. We speak with a speaking ape. Other animals vocalize and they can vocalize obviously in a very complex way, but they don't write rap or, you know, Shakespeare or, you know, epic poetry or whatever. That's us. We're the storytelling. And it seems, you know, the time I've spent in indigenous communities with shamans and healers and that sort of thing, that story seems to also be very tied up with healing in that it seems to be the original form of medicine in that even, even actually in modern medicine, what happens? You go to see the doctor with a story. You say, this is happening. This did happen. This has happened. This is happening now. Uh, what's the story? You know, the doctor goes off. You know, the shaman would go into the spirit world. You know, the doctor goes into their notes and their research, and then they come back with a set of instructions and sort of create a new story, which could be done through drugs. It could be done through, you know, a, a psychic medium. It could be not a medium in terms of connecting with the dead, but in terms of a channel. It could be done through many ways. It could be both. It could be all, but nonetheless, that seems to be what happens. It's a storytelling process. Where did storytelling begin for you as a girl? Were you always enamored of story? Oh yeah. I was an avid reader. My mother was always very ill while I was growing up. And so reading, reading was a great escape for me. And uh, of course it was reading every horse book that was was ever written and now seeing those some of those horse books that have come in been turned into movies and that you know, you're if you're a little girl and you read all the whole black stallion series and then you could watch the black stallion movie that was that was my escape so reading horse horse books i have shelves full of all the horse books that i've read as a when i was a kid i was able to find those books but that's the other one of the other things with equus is we have all the literate, we have books. We have usually 60 or so books that get entered every year. Oh, so you're not a literary festival as well as a film festival. We, we're literary, we're art, we're podcast. Okay. Any form of storytelling 
in the equine world. Okay. We, we award that. So for listeners, if you've got a book in you, get writing, you might be able to submit it. What was your mother sick with? What was, what was the issue with that? Oh, my mother had giant bone cell cancer, which back and when I was growing up, we didn't have even anywhere near the, the medicine that we have now, but she had bone cell cancer. She had lost a leg to that. And at, then at what age was she when that really kicked in? And what age were you? I was, well, okay. So I remember on my 13th birthday was when they told, told us as a family that they were going to amputate her leg, but she was, okay, we go back. My brother died when I was, my mom was five months pregnant with me in a tragic accident in our basement. He fell off of a pogo stick my older sister was bouncing him on, hit a tool in my dad's workshop, and it went into his ear and punctured his eardrum and went into his brain. And he lived maybe three days. So they didn't think that my, they thought my mom was going to lose me. She didn't. But she really never recovered, I think, don't think, from that point on. I think until she passed away and she was, I I believe, 64, 65, when she passed away, actually, and it was diabetes-related. Her body, she just, with that moment with my brother, I just think she just, I I don't have any other memories of, as a child, of her not being sad, I guess. You're so not she, being... She was sick and sad all through your childhood. Sick and sad all through my childhood. And my right. little sister. She... Say that again. And my little sister. I had a sister that came a couple of years after I was born, but she was never... My mom was never, never well. So between being physically or mentally, she was never, never really well. And your older sister, who had been bouncing your brother on the pogo stick, she must have, of course terribly. Yeah. And it wasn't until probably 30 years later, and it was after my mother passed away that I had an uncle who was a, a priest and he had a long talk with my sister where she, and then you talk about how people carry stuff. She really finally opened up and let loose and how, you know, it had affected her entire life. Yeah. yeah. You know, you watch Yeah. And you, and so you, I grew up very acutely aware of how one action affects everything. And so you have to be, you have to consciously make decisions in your life to not, to not fall into, you know, look at conscious decisions in your life all the way along, not to fall into any, you know, doing things that, negative you need to work on positivity what tell me about your father where was he in all this oh he was my dad my dad i love my dad my dad was great he was always there he was always took care of my mother and she was not she was not a happy person to take care of he would he worked all the time so what did he do he was a plant manager for a big aluminum rolling mill he was a mechanical manager for that my early, earlier i kind my brother who passed i kind of took his place with my dad so i was always kind of doing i don't want to call them boy things but i was all my dad there wasn't anything my dad 
ever told me I couldn't do. So if, if he was up fixing shingles on a roof, I was up fixing shingles on a roof with him, changing tires. I mean, learning how to change the oil in a car. There, if he did it, he wanted me to know how to do it. Did he teach all the kids and you just happen, happen to have more of a, of an aptitude for mm. that sort of practical stuff or did you all in fact? There was a, there was a big difference. My brother, my older sister was 13 years older. So I, I don't have much of a memory of her. It, she had, she got 18. So her youngest or her oldest daughter is the same age as my sister. So it, I don't have that memory of my older sister with my dad and my little sister. My mom was so ill at that point that my dad spent more time taking care of that end of my mother. Mm. So it was, no, and so I got, I was kind of always referred to as my dad's sidekick. Okay. Because you you had a much older one, a much younger one. You were sort of in the middle and able to. Middle child syndrome. Okay. (laughs) Interesting. So, so you're, 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 you have a positive dad, but a mum who is basically sick with sadness and grief. And you find story and you find horse stories as, 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 as a way to escape into happiness. What were the stories that really stood out for you at that age? Black Beauty, the Billy, I love the Billy and Blaze stories. I love the Black Stallion stories, Misty of Shinkatee, you know, just Always like horse hero stories. I love those kinds of stories. Horse hero stories. So horses that were somewhat against the odds. Yes. That, like, like the Black Beauty story, you know, sold yep. to bad people surviving. And yep. that, I guess, you were taking us back to the idea of the horse as a metaphor. Would you think it, it was clear to say that even if it was unconscious, you were putting yourself perhaps in the shoes, the horse shoes of... Of these, these under, underdog that. horse characters that were that were suffering, would would that be correct to set to say? Probably, probably dead on. Probably. Did you at some point want to tell story? Did you at some point say, "Well, I want to write. I want to create story," or was it different somehow? You know, I I like telling stories through through pictures and film versus writing. Uh, and that's evolved. That's really evolved in the last 20 years with doing that. I love that having bred the Lusitano horses, the horses that I, I think every baby that we've had that's hit the ground is part of a story. And so uh, following every one of our foals as they grow up and what they're doing, you know, it's, it's, that's just more of the way to tell those stories. So sort of living oh. stories, really. Mm-hmm. Living stories. Like that, like Josh's story, kind of like your son's story. I, I like those stories where they can still continue because people still want to know what's going on with Rowan. They still, Josh still loves the fact that now we can take pictures of him four or five years later and he's now riding his mom's Lusitano mare and taking riding classes with mm. her. And, you know, it's, it's continuation. It's not something that has an ending. So it, ha- it just continues. 
you get into story partly to assuage this, you know, to, to survive really, or to thrive in this, in, in this house full of grief, as, as well as of course your relationship with your dad and so on. You say that living stories and it latterly filmed, were you, did you, had you always sort of wanted to be a filmmaker? Did you, were there films that you watch that, was there always this little bit of you say, hey, I want to do that, but I just don't know how I'm going to do that. You know, I don't know if it was something consciously that I had. I've always been a creator. So when I worked, when I was in engineering at General Motors, you're you're creating, you're taking blueprints and creating a, something that will grow into being a part in a in a truck or a car. That evolved into building houses and, and building developing subdivisions just i love the creative process i love taking something that is just an, an idea and turning it into something whatever it is whether it's a story or a house or a barn i'm working right now on a friend's barn so you can't can't get away from it no sure and and i think you know creative people will always do it's, it's very interesting to to hear you say actually that the creative process of of an auto part is as because of course it is it's as creative as a movie or a book and or a piece of art we often don't think of it that way until of course we see them they say it was a roman artifact or an egyptian artifact which is just a tool on display in the met or something like that oh wow it's beautiful amazing look at that technology it's incredible what's the story behind that because if we see you know that because the the, the junk the, the junk of Today is tomorrow's archaeology, as they say. So everything has that creative process. It's good to be a, reminded. A button does. Yes, you're right. A button does. A button. Yeah. Process. You as that little girl with story, did, was there a part of you that said, I want to tell stories, or was it not conscious? I think it was always conscious. Tell stories or create something. Just, just do something. I mean, I was always doing something, you know, whether it was cooking, cooking, cooking. Gardening. Maybe it, I did write a few little stories when I was a kid. I, I was never like drawing. Like I could, st it's still a stick horse. Okay. Like thank God for Adobe because you now I can really get kind of creative. But with Photoshop, but writing and 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 film, you know, film photo has always been a great, you know, a good way for me to. Put a story together. Did you pick up a camera young? I yeah, I think I had one of those that you clicked and the the, the picture came out of. But yeah, I always had I've always had a camera. I always had when video cameras first came out, even you know, with even just with doing stuff with trips or whatever, I was always the one taking the pictures, capturing capturing the moments. To but tell the story. Would you but, say primarily then you, 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 you instinctively realized very young that the way to heal was through positive creative action, basically. Oh, yes. And yes, did somebody yes. tell you that? Like, did your dad tell you that? Or did a mentor tell you that? Or did you just come to that? Was it, was it not, was it, was it one of those households where it wasn't openly discussed? 
or did your dad say, actually, listen, this is the way, or was it, yeah, was it intuitive? I don't think he ever said as much. So listen, this is the way I, I, I remember with him never telling me I couldn't, I remember taught with very distinctly with him one time, one of the facilities he worked at, they had a, a, a metal cooling, a problem on how to cool metals. And I, I drew him up a little, little schematic and, and he didn't, he didn't downplay it. He was like, well, that's great. You know, you know, it's good to think about that and problem solve and, and try to, try, try to work out the problems. I was never told I couldn't, you know, if I wanted to do something, I couldn't, you know, you can't do that. You can't do that because you're a girl. So I, I was never put down that way but and nowadays well they still have and it's gonna we're gonna have to go back so many light years now between ov wade and barbie for girls with getting back to where they have told they can do something you're like well no now you've got girls so or girl but no being able to to just create if i wanted to and so you, would you think it was just more that you, just, you, you yourself realized that staying creative was the way to find healing rather than yes. somebody specifically saying, this is how to find healing. Yes. Yes. I would say that. And now of course, here you are with a festival that's primarily about healing under the masquerading as a, as a, as a, as a, as a festival about horses. What? made you think festival have you always liked the <laughs> idea of groups of people coming together to celebrate creativity and that sort of way like uh, yeah at what point did festival creep in the festival creeped in when we were breeding the horses and you <laughs> with your documentary we were doing the town i was in there there was no horse event around so I had the bright idea of let's try to do with some friends, let's try to do a festival that addresses equine assisted therapy, that addresses the African American community with their horses. Because in Chicago, there's a lot of, there's a bunch of guys who are Buffalo soldiers. Plus, there's also a big black cowboy community in Chicago. We have a wonderful Hispanic community in the area that does Musa, a lot of the beautiful Musa, dancing. By the way, for those who don't know what that is, that's the female side saddle mounted displays, right? In the Mexican tradition. Beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. And then we have classical writing and, and along with art and literature. So we were going to create a festival that kind of addressed Things that aren't at your average worship. Oh, we had Native Americans too. We had a, a big Native American component to the festival. We, it was called Festival of Horse and Drum. And it, that was when we did the very first film festival. And I have a friend who owns a theater in town. And I asked him if I could show your film because you had just broken your leg. So you were not going to be able to come, but <laughs> you were going to Skype in which I broke my leg last year, so I had to follow in your footsteps. But we did, we had 
that. And I, and so I asked Ron, I said, can we show some film or show this documentary? He goes, yeah, as you can show it. And it's a beautiful little theater. And so he's, after he said, yes, I said, well, what if I got a few more? Because you know how I am over it. I can't, I can't just stop. And so I had 30 films the first year and that kind of let me know that this is something that is out there. All of these films are out there because forever, and we had jousters too. So for every aspect of what we had at that festival, there was a documentary that existed in the world that was a counterpart, a, a complement to that. So the therapy part, we had yours. We had a Nakota horse stories. We had a documentary about a scare, beautiful scare Musa documentary. We had a jousting documentary. We had the Black Rodeo, which was held in Harlem back in the 70s, a documentary on that. So there were so many stories out there before we even tried to, to put out a call for, for equine-themed documentaries that it just kind of let me know that this might, there might be something to this. And then I guess your background with engineering must have come in handy in terms of the logistics and the organization and the sort of nuts and bolts. So yeah, 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 yeah. It just, it's, it's just piecing the puzzle together. So what are, over the, it's been quite a few years now that you've been running this festival. What are the stories that really, really stand out for you that we should all be aware of? Because there'll be people who are driving their cars listening to this. So I want to, I want to tell you guys at this point, pull over and get the notebook out. Or we could put in your show notes. Exactly. Um, and of course, you can also listen to this, you know, later on. But what are the must-thees and the must-reads um, that you've come oh, across so. over the years that you're like, whoa, this one changed my life, this one changed my life, that we might not know about? What, what are the stories that, that we should know? I'm, gonna, I'm getting my notebook out too. Well, you know, this is the 11th season with this, doc, with this film festival. And we've had over 600 films submitted into this festival, which is kind of mind-blowing when, when you sit back and think of it. But there's one that, that, actually there's two that really stick out in my mind, but one is called Healing Horses. And these are short. These are under 20 minutes. So tell us but, about sure. Healing Horses, the Healing Horses doc. The, the Healing Horses documentary is about a young lady who has a car accident on the 4th of July. So immediately you must think it's a teenager out drinking and driving, which it totally wasn't. But she learns how to walk again with the therapeutic use of this big draft horse, which happens to also be a, a world equestrian level draft horse that teams that come into the United States, Karen is uh, the lady who runs the program is also a coach for a lot of the the teams and so she'll use this this draft horse who is on his side gig is being used as a therapy horse and the other one was an early on documentary called riding my way back and it was about a veteran who got into a program just met this horse kind of standoffish for a great part of it, but then got into a real one-on-one -on -one relationship with the horse. And when he was about four weeks into the program, 
maybe it was four months, turned around and gave his therapist a letter. And the letter had said how he was going to commit suicide the night that he called to say goodbye to the horse. And because of this horse, he didn't do that. And now he is mentoring other veterans and he's part of the program and he's engaged to this beautiful young girl. And, you know, it's, it's just such a, it's such a feel good, amazing story, but it's what horses can do for us. Riding my way back. Yep. Robin Rosenthal was a filmmaker. Beautiful doctor. Rosenthal. Okay. And healing horses. Yeah. Who was the, who was the, I would have, that was way back in the beginning. I have to, I'd have to look up who that filmmaker was, but there's just so many amazing ones. We're working on a, on a project right now that kind of goes back to the Mustang series we're working on called the Must. The whole project is called the Mustang Discovery Ride Project. But I had a Mustang Discovery Ride. Yes. So two years ago, actually, it's funny, two years ago today, I met a young lady in Montana, Bozeman, Montana, at Art of the Cowgirl, who they were looking for someone to help them pull together their project. And they were starting in Delaware. So logistically, them coming out of Montana or Wyoming and getting them to Delaware was a, was a project and a half. But they rode from Delaware to California, all the way across the United States, almost 5,000 miles with four Mustangs and a mule, mule stang. And all the way across the country, we set up meetings and seminars and clinics at different veterans or youth programs across the country for her to speak at as she wrote. And finding all of these places non-connected to different associations. These are just kind of standalone places where the horses are healing people, mostly Mustangs. But that was, that's just amazing. So that documentary is, Julianne Neal is working on getting that finished out. I know you met her years ago and she's been an important part of Equus. But she's the was the chief filmmaker on that documentary, so that hopefully will be ready, gosh, by sometime next year because there's a ton of there's a year's worth of, a year and a half's worth of footage because we wrapped that last November on the beach in California. Tell me, I mean, as a filmmaker myself, I immediately think, oh, that sounds expensive. How did she finance that ride? That's not a cheap thing to do. And then nope. to make a, a documentary around it. What what were the mechanisms there? So we had, because it was Mustangs, we had some support from the Mustang Heritage Foundation, which supported until about halfway through, and then they ran out of their support. We had to, we had to really scramble. But because I have some amazing filmmakers all the way across the country, and Julianne was willing to to kind of oversee the main part of the uh, putting everything together. I had different filmmakers who came in and rode with Lasanne and would film and do some riding. And Rhonda Gregorio, who's working on the Mustang book project, 
she came in and rode in in Washington, D.C. with us. We rode all the way down out of, gosh, I can't remember the name of the park, but through this park all the way along into downtown D.C. up to the Washington Monument with these Mustangs, which was one of the most nerve-wracking but exciting things that I've ever done. And, uh, but I had, I have had an amazing group of filmmakers across the country who were willing to just come on and ride for a couple of weeks with her or, or drive along or do whatever, follow or ride in the chase car and film and get parts of this story. So from that point of view, I mean, it's going to be a little rougher, but we just screened one of the best documentaries I've seen called The Long Rider. Which was about Felipe Lete, okay. the long rider. That came out. That was part of the festival last year. That's a ninety-minute documentary. Felipe rode from Canada to Brazil. Felipe, he who? did a Lete. Ale, how do I spell that? I think it's L E T I E. I can get you that because L-E-T-I-E. I think he needs to be on your show. L-E-T-I-E. But <laughs> Felipe Lete, okay, um, Brazilian guy. Pardon me? Brazilian guy? Yes. And okay. he lives in Canada now, but his family, it's an amazing story. And so he did most of his own filming with a hand, you know, with his phone or with a, a GoPro. And, you know, when you're telling a story of riding across the country, it, you want to see it from the seat of the rider. You want you want that bird's eye view as you're going across, kind of like what Ben Masters did with Unbranded. That was one of our our first documentaries we had in the in the festival was Unbranded, and that you still that still stands up. It's beautiful and breathtaking. But Felipe rode from Canada to Brazil, then from Brazil to the furthest, most southern tip you can ride, I think, in Argentina. Then they went back up. He went up to Alaska and rode from Alaska back down to Calgary, Canada. So that's an amazing, amazing and what was story. He, what was he trying to achieve with this? Why did he do this crazy ride? He To ride the three... At, with Shifley's book about, about riding the Americas, he wanted to follow Shifley's story. And so... And, and he's, he's a character. You'll love him. He's a character. He's a great interview. He's just... Such an amazing young man. What what what? But was he trying uh, to bring again, attention to any cause, or what? What was this? What was the catalyst? No, not really to any cause. This was. It was more that he could do this. Mm-hmm. It, you know, long riders are with Lasan. It was different because we were riding. We were doing the Mustang horses were the whole focus of this to bring awareness to all the horses that are standing in BLM hold, which is. Right now, close to 70,000 horses that they've rounded up. They're standing and holding. We can use them in veterans programs. We can use them in mental health programs with youth. We can use them. They're, they're wonderful riding horses. They're great all around horses. So that was what our project was about, bringing awareness to these horses and holding. Rupert was a long rider. And Felipe. in the world, there's an orchestra. Pardon me? So Felipe was Felipe. A long yeah, yeah. Yeah. When you say yes. a long rider, what does that yes. mean? What's a long rider? So there's an organization called the Long Rider 
skilled. I think they're they're based out of either Ireland, Ireland. I think it's Ireland. The the the, the main writer or the the organization is out of, but it's an organization that if you ride more than a thousand miles in your ride from start to get you know for the ride to end, you bec- you qualify to be a long rider, and that you can join the Long Riders Guild then. Bernice Endy, who we had the documentary a couple of years ago about Lady Long Rider, she, who, she passed away a year and a half ago, but she rode 30,000 miles across the United States. There's, there's all of these people out there that do this, that and go they, out. They're not doing it for any out. specific cause. They're doing yeah. it as a personal odyssey. The, no. Yep. Bernice got divorced. And when she got divorced, she got on her horses and just started riding. She was going to ride to go visit her sister. And she just kept riding. And she kept riding until she, she, her last long ride was two months before she died of cancer. She just kept riding. There's just people who it's like a runner. It's like anybody else that wants to get out there in their sport achieve for, for their personal best well what what your but what immediately springs to mind when you talk about these rides is he said she just kept riding remember forrest gump he starts running and then he just keeps running and of course he builds his following but of course what he's really doing it for is healing do you think that yes it, clearly this lady who, who who died of cancer with her thirty thousand miles was after her divorce that seems to be a healing she journey. She's trying to heal. Is, is, is Felipe with his Canada to Tierra del Fuego and back up, is, is he looking for healing as well? He talks completely and openly about his search for healing and how the horses for his mental health. One of the organizations that we're working with now is Horses for Mental Health. Horses um, for Mental Health. Two year two-year-old organization, Lynn Thomas, who's the founder of EGALA, is now the director for Horses for Mental Health. And Felipe was just on her, they had, in May, they had their big Mental Health Awareness Month with the horse campaign. And Felipe was one of the guests on there and talks about, you know, the depression and, and how horses and what horses have done for him. So really he was doing, he was so, riding, yeah, he was so riding his way away from and through depression. Healing. Okay. So this is interesting. I mean, we talked to, you talked earlier about the idea of horses as metaphor. And I was asking you, what do you feel horses are a metaphor for? And I do think that, I think everybody, would you not agree? Who, oh. whether, whether they whether they're horse people or not, when people think of horses, they think freedom, don't they? You think freedom, you think that's a free animal. If I sit on the back of this horse, it will take me to freedom. You think about the image of the cowboy, you think about riding the range. It, it, it's about freedom in a world that seems to be less and less free. Do, do you feel that with the Equus Film Festival, you can give people a sense that they can find freedom through, through the whether it's by actually doing these things that these people are doing, these sort of pilgrimages people are doing, or, or just through the stories themselves? I think, I think that's a yes to both. One of, one of the films we had a couple of years 
years ago was about, called the Gobi Gala. And my friend, Julie Vilu, who runs the, the Vilu Foundation, she started this ride in Mongolia in her 60s to, and she didn't even start riding till her mid to late 50s. She started this ride now to help build build schools and libraries for the children in the village in the Mongolian village where she first went to do a, a, a horseback ride because she saw these children scrounging for food and clothing and everything else on a garbage dump. And she thought, my God, I I, I have to be able to do something about this. And so since then, we've showed her documentary and We've had people who, after they've seen their document, her documentary, have gone and ridden with her. Every year, she do, they do an annual ride now, and she they actually have five or six different rides they do in Mongolia, and it's it's completely changed her life. Getting into to what she's doing now, it's like a, a, a another whole phase of her life happening. I, I've seen this happen time and time again with so many people with. The horses, when the horses just, when it's their time to be part of your life, you can't, there's nothing you can do to to stop them from coming on and driving and and taking you where you're going. The the people who come to your festival, I should imagine they're primarily horse people, but are you getting the general public? Are there people who are showing up to the festival with no horse background at all? A little bit, but they usually come as guests with someone with that has horses. Uh, and a good partnership would would be with something like, say, being a little off, kind of like what I want to call off Broadway. But when when Sundance does their big festival, they'll have like rooms that do either cat films or very specific genre films. That would probably get a, a broader audience, but I think, and the sad thing is, is that no matter how good a horse documentary is, it's still a horse documentary. And the industry, as far as the other film festivals and that, they tend to not show horse, horse-themed films. I have no idea why. It, it, it doesn't make sense why they wouldn't show it. And amazes me because some of these are some of the best movies I've ever seen, just from this right pure emotion sure, and cinematic. But in terms of the, of the audiences that that show up to your festival, do you get non horsey people? Only from ninety percent if they come with other people, like with a horse okay. lover. So it's like a then cult. they get kind they, of they, they have to be initiated, and then they don't the want to leave. Okay, yes. so so for example, with the 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 horses for mental health or um, with the Mustang issue in America, I, I happen to know that it's costing the taxpayer. I think it's one hundred and fifty million a year to put, keep these horses in these holding pens, which are not not very nice if they don't end up going down shipped down to Mexico to right. salt the meat. And these are issues which, of course, don't get into the mainstream unless people find out about them somehow. Obviously, therapeutic riding 
you know, and, and working with horses and mental health, this now is edging its way into the mainstream. Obviously I work right. in the field and people are starting to be referred to us, but it's a slow, slow process. What do you feel you could do? I mean, you're, you're obviously already doing it, but what do you feel you could, the, the, the film, the, the festival could do more to bring the idea that horses are integral to human mental health into the wider mainstream so that they, they don't have to stumble upon your, your, your festival right. uh, with a, with a horsey person. Uh, how, how can we move it further into the mainstream? Do you think this message? Well, where we are in the horse world to reach further, to get to more people, we've started a, what we call the Mustang summit, because part of what and it's kind of a different layered answer, but the Mustang Summit has been developed to be an educational platform where we talk only about off-range issues after the horses had been rounded up in those 60, 70,000 horses. What can we do with them? There's two really distinct camps in the wild horse world, and there's there's kind of the wild horse extremists that think they should just stay out in the plains and nothing should be done with them and let them be wild. And then there's the people that have have Mustangs and love them and realize that the Bureau of Land Management, which the other camp thinks is the evil overlord, has been tasked in 1971 when the Wild Horse and Bureau Act passed they were tasked with managing these wild horses. They're just like deer. I don't want to be in a country where we have an open season on hunting, where we give a hunter a license to go out and pull 20,000 horses. That happened. That was called how kennel ration got started. So in order to stay out of that, we have to have roundups and a certain amount of those horses have to be rounded up every year. Well, when you bring that certain amount of horses in, the, we, in, in the U.S., we have the Shinkatee ponies. I think everybody knows what the Shinkatee ponies are. Where yes, they let, round let them me up. Just, for those listeners oh. outside of, of the USA, Shinkatee is an island off of the coast of Virginia. And there's actually a few of these islands, they're called barrier islands, where horses washed up from shipwrecks hundreds of years ago and have established feral populations, some of which are quite famous at Shinkatee. Okay. I'll shut up now. It's back, back, back to that. Look, well, the Shinkatee model works because the, the fire department for the last 70 years and in Shinkatee has kind of overseen the pony population. They round them up every year. They swim them across a channel. They take, give them their shots. They keep a record of who's who. They take the, the younger horses, the babies and the yearlings, and they auction them off. And the older breeding stock gets taken back to the island to, to, to start a new crop. And the, that model works. We have... We have all different kinds of what's called HMAs out west, horse management areas, where people love, say, Sandwash Basin. There's beautiful, very colorful Mustangs that come out of that area. People love them. 
if we started to do like with the Shinkati model, where you're cultivating a group of people who want those very specific Mustang horses, then you've got your, you've got your buyers. And every year you have people who are waiting in line for that roundup to happen to bring those horses in. And so they can auction or pick their horse out of an auction. And so that's years away creating that. So in the meantime, we still have 70,000 horses, 65 or whatever the number is, it changes that we have to find homes for. So with the Mustang Summit, our goal is to educate people about the prison programs, the veteran programs, the youth program. There's a youth program in Utah that turns out 50 to 60 horses a year through their tip training program with their kids who have gone through the adoption, the welfare system with the kids and the kids who are going through all of the youth at risk. It's a a youth at risk program. Mm -hmm. They, those kids are the ones doing the gentling of the Mustangs. And it's called Three Point Center. They do an amazing job. So the, the Mustangs work with youth at risk. They work with Sue Ann Wells, who has her program in Chattanooga, Tennessee, with her inner city girls program, who are doing dressage with Mustangs. And then they, they work with all of the other programs that are out there. So that's what we try to do with the the Mustang Summit is to at least educate that part. But in my heart of hearts, I I genuinely believe and feel that 130 years ago or so, maybe even 140, everybody at some point was around a horse, whether it was a horse pulling the milk wagon or delivery wagons, or horses were by humans. Still in other parts of the world, horses are by humans all the time. And you know, you want to get deeper into the conversation, you don't see youth committing suicide in those countries at the rate that they're committing suicide in this country. We had daily interaction with, this, with sentient beings, horse or cow or whatever. Now we are removed from that because nobody's around horses on a daily basis, except for those of us that have horses and know what they do. And I think that horses are here for their next part of, of, their, uh, of their journey with the humans to heal us. That more importantly, not to be a riding instrument, which is, it, it's, I would not give up my, give up riding horses, period. I love getting on my horse and riding but to to whether they're people are riding whether they're doing therapy with them or whatever that horses are here to heal us horses are here to bring people back to what they're missing in life and that's that that connection that call it heart math that that finding your center again finding your peace and you you can do that when you're with your horse or a horse, any horse. Well, I, I like what you said just now also about that it, it wasn't just horses. It was being around sentient beings. Obviously, we, we have pets, but I think mm-hmm. that our relationship with our pets can be different because what does a horse do? It carries you or it, you rely on it. 
you know, what did a cow do? You, you relied on it. I, if you have a hunting dog, I suppose, or a guide dog, a seeing eye dog or a sheep dog, or something, you rely on it. But of course, the vast majority of people with pets, I have pets too. We don't, we, we just have them as a, as a feel good factor for our mental health. Really, that's why we have pets. But it is true what you say, I think. And something I hadn't considered though, is that yes, the, the, the malaise that you see through the youth of the Western world, and I think probably the industrialized world everywhere. Yes. Um, yes. It seems that mental health is deteriorating, that, that depression's on the rise. And Rapidly. despite the fact that life has materially never been better. And it's interesting that you say in the countries where people are around sentient beings all the time in a way that they're around them, you, you have better mental health. It's, it would seem that suicide, for example, and that sort of thing, not so much of a factor. That, I think you've just answered my question for what's in it for the mainstream person, because let's say you're listening to this podcast and well, why should I listen to a podcast about a, 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 a festival around art and film with horses? I mean, I, I live in an apartment in London or Queens or Buenos Aires or Cape Town. It, it makes no difference to me. I don't care from horses. But I think you're, the point that you're making about being around sentient beings, back to where we went to with heart math earlier, is, is, is important. And it seems that you're somewhat of a prophet of this. Where would you like this to go? You, 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 you've established now a very successful festival. You, you could say yourself actualized with it. You're, you're kind of making a living from it. You've, you've taken this idea that everyone said was just this silly little niche idea for people that like ponies and you put the lie to that. Obviously you, you're, you're, you're educating people about the Mustang issue. Obviously you're ed educating people about horses and mental health and so on. But where would you like to go back to yourself as a little girl? Where would you like to really go with this festival? What would you like to see it do? I'd like to see more people, non-horse people, people coming and seeing this magic. Because it's magic. I mean, it's, it's so powerful. And, and I don't care whether I'm showing films, and I still do this three times a year at a library by us. I'll take a, a group of our documentaries and we do a little movie night at a library. And you see people walking out in tears just because they, they, they're so moved. They're just, they, they're just so moved because they simply had, and people will go just keep saying, I had no idea. I had no idea. That's, that seems to be the chant of people who've seen the, seen horse movies that are about mental health or veterans or kids therapeutic uses they walk out and they just go i just i just had no idea and i'd like that to be more more people to be experiencing that because these people these filmmakers work so hard to pull these stories together and to share them with with people and to, to let someone experience to have the experience that i had the first time i saw your to want to make, to want to make it, everybody to to see that. I think everybody who who 
takes the time to make a documentary about horses or uh, you know what what is going on, whether it's a good one or a bad one, they've still put their heart and soul into into that storytelling. You know, it, it's really interesting. As you were doing this, I, I I was inspired to just jump on Google because it it reminded me of something I read a few months ago, which was that for people who are stuck in cities, and I think this came out of lockdown, that watching nature documentaries, for example, wildlife documentaries and nature documentaries, turned out to be incredibly good for people's health, not just their mental health, but actually their physical health too. And of course, what is a horse but nature and where do horse documentaries take place? And I was just thinking, well, what's in it for me if I, I don't care from horses, but and I've, I've just got something here that says, in a new study published by Oxford University Press, experts describe how television shows can ultimately not benefit not just the planet by making people more interested in, in nature and the causes of nature, but it backed up something which had come out from the University of, of California, Berkeley, where watching nature documentaries of any kind was shown to be one of the best ways to boost your mental health and decrease stress. And of course, we know that stress is a physical thing. It, it's not just a, something that happens because the amygdala in the brain signals your body to produce cortisol, the stress hormone. That stress hormone we know is a neurotoxin. So people who are stressed all the time, which is most people in our culture, are suffering you know, health, physical health degradation from it. Would you posit that by producing this documentary and sort of put it, this festival and putting all of these documentaries out there for people to watch and giving them a, a platform where they get to television and that sort of thing, you're actually benefiting people's physical as, as well as mental health way outside of the horse world? I would love to think that that would happen. It seems, well, it seems the academics think it, it, it is. Uh, it's, it's, it's very interesting to, to, to hop on to, to Google. It seems to be a hot topic right now. I just did one, one little search here, and it seems that it does come down to reducing stress, which makes perfect sense if you think about it, I guess, because if, if planet Earth is where our organism, because humans are organism, is pre-programmed to, to be in, and of course, we, we divorce ourselves from that, then to beam something into a living room, to beam something into a cell phone, surely must connect one, reconnect one, even if it's in a metaphorical or a virtual way. Mm -hmm. Something in our organism must respond to that, would you not think? Oh, I think for sure, because we're, we are, we're mammals. I mean, we, we are the same type of being that the horse is, we just can have the ability to think a bit more, but, and some there, that could be questionable at some time with some people, but I noticed you that's where the word horse yeah. comes it's from. <laughs> but there was a, one of our, we also do commercials, have commercials in the festival and equine productions who happens to be based in the UK did a really nice piece, a little commercial on for the mental health. There's a mental health group that takes care of the jockeys and people who work at the racetracks. And uh, when you were talking, you were talking a little bit about people in their apartment or this and that, but I'll bet you there's a bunch of people who are gamblers and 
or race horses oh, and yes. that yeah. kind of thing. I mean, the dark side of the industry affects yeah. them yeah. that way too. Mm. Yes, the dark side of the racing world, but still a horse world. But they did a beautiful little piece and it was more, it just kind of scanned. I want to think, I think it was at Ascot, Royal Ascot, and they would zoom in on a, on someone in the crowd and they would say, has body issues. You know, just maybe it's the, maybe it's a jockey or one of the ladies serving. And then the other one would say dealing with dealing with grief. And it would just keep zooming in and on on different people. And it made you stop and think. Everybody's got a story. Everyone has something going on. You know, everyone needs what the horse has to give them at some level because everybody has something going on in their life it goes to that little i I have a little sign in the kitchen that says be nice because you don't know what the other person's going through you'll always be nice because you don't know what the other person's going through you know what kind of day they're having you don't know what their home life is you don't know whether they're going through a, a a parent dying or something i mean you just never know so it, never take it personally. What would yeah, it, it's it, to me? This goes beyond horses, and it goes back to the oh, human power of story, yeah. right? So yes. there you are as a little girl, and you're growing up in a household where you're you're seeing your mother die slowly from grief, basically in front of your eyes. It manifests as cancer, but mm-hmm. effectively that, and you see your older sister functional but walking dead to some degree because of this terrible guilt of what happened to your brother, even though I'm sure it wasn't her fault. It's just a freak thing. Uh, And then you fortunately have this creative dynamic father who includes you in everything and shows you, encourages you to, to be creative in every way and shows you the creative power of what people often don't think of as creative things like the engineering side, the building side that that actually pointing out to machine tooling, that sort of thing, that that is actually as creative as writing a novel or, or producing a piece of art. Then you get into obviously horses and horse breeding and suddenly you want to run a horse festival to promote stuff that you wouldn't normally see in your regular horse show. And that leads you into this very successful Equus festival. But really, it seems to me what you've done through the whole thing is you've You've, you've identified the healing power of story and you've created a nexus whereby people can be healed through story. It happens to be about primarily about horses, but it obviously could be pretty much any story. If story is at the root of healing for humans and festivals are where we find out about and celebrate and give our attention to this type of healing. I, I think everyone who goes to a festival of one kind or other always comes away feeling uplifted, inspired. I know there's a lot of people out there probably listening who would like to do a festival. It's certainly always been in the back of my mind. Oh God, I'd quite like to do a festival. Someday. I think a lot of people have this idea. What Give us your nuts and bolts as, a, as a, the engineering side of you. How do you put a festival together? And how do you make it work? Because most festivals don't work. How do you make a festival work? How do you do it? Team. A great team. 
having having a great support team, people, really good people helping. I've learned with, especially with the Equus component of this festival, with the film component, that we partner now with next, or in the middle of July, I'll be at Briar Fest at the Kentucky Horse Park, which for those out there that don't know what Briar Fest is, everyone, I think, globally knows what Briar horses are. They're the little model horses that come in a, come in a yellow box. And every little girl usually has at least one of them. But Briar Fest gets about 40,000 people every year in, at the horse park. We show, I go down there and we'll do a day of film sh- screening the films. I've learned to partner with other festivals. We come in as a, as a component to, to festivals now with the Mustang Summit where we have the film festival and the Mustang Summit kind of running simultaneously. One, because there's some overlap between the documentaries and the, the storytellers of those documentaries, which happen to be worse people who then in the morning, they can go watch a seminar with that horse person and then go in the evening and watch a documentary and sit through a Q&A with the filmmaker who made a, a film about that horse person. So I've learned that all throughout the years. COVID was killer for two years, but we learned how to go virtual. We learned how to do a lot of stuff online. We have a film channel, the Equus Film Channel, where people can go and watch, I think it's seven dollars a month they can watch some of our horse documentaries and films on demand the, the equus we have film an channel. app it, that, it's taught is us that how run to by do you is or is that is that uh run by a large it's, if we company. have uh, i i it's it's on film festival flicks is who we are there we are their horse channel so it's a company out of valet that i work with and we're their we're their horse content. So it's a whole dedicated channel called the Equus Film Channel. There's an app that that we have that's Film Festival Flicks, and then you, we're on that app. You know, it's, we you learn when before COVID, we were doing quite a few tour stops around the country. Every month we would be in a different location. Canada, You, I remember sitting down with you one time we were at the Abilities Expo. In for the the therapeutic expo where people could come and get their stuff, and you and I were talking. You were talking about at one day this this film festival you can would be able to carry it in a suitcase. Well, we've gone from being in a suitcase to now it goes on a hard drive, so we can go anywhere with the film festival and screen these films. So if if it, a, a little goal I have, I'd love to be doing something with. Next week is the five schools, the five riding schools are doing a big presentation in Spain. And I did not know until a friend of mine is going to see this, that Abu Dhabi now has a classical riding school. Did you know that? I did not know that. We're talking about Baroque classical dressage in the, in the vein of the Spanish riding school of Vienna. That Yes. So this, the Spanish riding school is is there the portuguese school is there the andalusian school is there the school from france it, france is there and then the saudi arabian i mean the school from abu dhabi is there 
So the five schools are coming together to do a big presentation in Spain. So I would love to take the festival to Abu Dhabi. I think that would be really cool to take the film festival there to do a weekend screening or whatever, maybe Germany. And we, we did a little short one in France and we're talking to some people in the UK. So now that we're all past the COVID fear, I think, I think we'll be moving a little bit. Things have loosened up since January of this year. So since this January, we've been in, I, almost every month I've been somewhere else with the film festival. So it's um, finally shaking. <laughs> after, at what point would you say, let's talk about money. I think when people get an idea for a festival of any kind, there's an initial rush of enthusiasm. And then they say, oh, but shit, we need sponsors. How do we do that? And everyone sort of scratches their head and yep, we need looks, the, looks the other way. How do you get the money to run a festival? Talk to us. I, let's say everyone's listening now wants to run a festival. What are the, what's the A, B, C, and D of how do you get the money to run a festival? We still need sponsors, but we, we take the money that we get from sponsors and you make the ends meet at that event and you do the best you can and you pray for a little bit of a turnout with people and you then plan for the next one. And what do you maybe. do to get it off the ground, though? Do you have to just put in your own money at first? You put in your money. You either put in your own money or you have people who are willing to put money in, and that's your sponsors. And I, Equus has been very lucky because we have a couple of people who really believe in what the mission is that have, that regularly make a, a nice donation to keep the mission going. But, you know, it's, it's, don't do it if you think you're going to make a fortune, but do it. I do it because I'm passionate. I, I believe that this is that every time I say, damn it, I'm not doing this again. Somebody sends me a really great film and I'm like, damn it. I want everybody to see that film. And so as long as the creators keep creating good horse stories. I think there needs to be someone out there reviewing and patting them on the back and, and maybe giving them an award for taking the time to, to make that content. And before we were in existence, before Equus was here, and to any big sponsors out there that might be listening, this is why I think it's a responsibility of a Purina or a you're bigger people who who exist on horses. Their their business exists because of the horse. They should be the ones really carrying the carrying it on this, because without those people telling, getting those stories to us, and us being there to say, "Wow, you did a great job," or "Here, let's have an audience that will actually see it." then that little film will get made and it might go on YouTube. Somebody might see it on YouTube, but only per chance. And then it just is out there in the internet world. So at least with us, someone sends us a film and it gets shown to the uh, different audiences and we help, help get these stories out. Because otherwise, how are they going to get out? So Purina and the big feed companies and that's, they're not yet sponsoring you. 
Not yet. Not yet. Okay. Okay. No, well, and that's after that's after eleven years. So. Okay. Are you actively going after them? Saying, hey, um, we yeah, we are knocking a little. We, it's it's after the tenth year, things are changing a little. Like people, people go, oh, it's you're not going away. <laughs> okay, so longevity is an important thing. You got you got to stick. Oh around. yes, okay. yes, yes. Talk to me about the, the the structures. You said donations. Are you what you'd call in America a five hundred one c three or a nonprofit? What people in England would call no. charity. You are a a for-profit or a not-for-profit organization? We're a LLC. What I found, and again, this is in in this country, I know a lot of people who've had some really great nonprofits going, and EGALA is the classic example. Lynn Thomas and Greg Kirsten started that organization, and their boards voted them out, got rid of them. Which, you know, once they wanted to, I mean, they just, once it was successful, the boards got rid of them. So. Palace coups. Yeah. Yes. So the, I just think that this mission, we've really been able to stay true to the mission of what Equus is. And that's being the home to the storytellers of the horse world, whether it's through film or art or literature. That we've been able to stay true to that because I don't have a board saying, well, we don't like this film. So I, I don't, you know, we're not, we're, we don't have that, the, the heavy hand of your nonprofit. You can't do this. So but presumably, you know, we're though, for profits. So in, in the American climate, though, people obviously can give money to a not for profit and get a tax deductible donation from that. And that allows people with nonprofits to, to fundraise quite effectively, you you're saying you right to somebody denies yourself that mechanism. Do you, do you think that it would it, be easier if you were a nonprofit to get sponsors and funding? It, it's a it's a the half and half because right now sponsor dollars are so tight everywhere. Even people who are nonprofits, sponsor dollars are are tough to come across. It just we haven't we haven't done gone after that yet that part of it yet because it is with co- when COVID hit I wasn't sure whether we were going to be able to keep it going and then when we were able to to keep plugging along through having we I mean we had two virtual festivals with COVID we had to do it completely online were it worked it was. I don't know how we did it, but we did it. And I mean, people had fun and people won awards and, it, you know, we pulled through it. But, you know, this has been a year to regroup. This this year, this is the first year since COVID that we've really, you know, gotten really back into things 100%. So. But basically you're saying then that the, the Equus Film Festival runs as a business like any other business and it has to sink or swim depending on yes so people that so, so the people who donate who, who become sponsors what they're doing is they're investing in a business are they investing, investing in- are they investing in it looking for a return or are they investing in, in, yeah. in it as angels they're investing as investor angels yeah so what looking you- to keep the keep it going okay so if if you're somebody out there, and I'm sure there will be people out there, and one of my goals with this podcast is to help people 
who want to make a living doing the quote unquote impossible as you have, as I have and so on. I want them to know what the mechanisms are because when, when I was younger, I couldn't really find people to mentor me and, and answer those questions for me. And I had to sort of piece it together over years. Let's say someone decides to go your route. They say, okay, I want to do a festival. I've been listening to this Lisa Dearson lady. She says, okay, the, 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 the danger of going the nonprofit route is that you could end up getting voted off your own board. Okay. Copy that. So now I've got to find angel investors because my, it's not a purely commercial enterprise. I can't offer people a, you know, a shareholder thing or something, or at least not for the first hundred years. How do you go about finding angel investors? What's the ABC of that? Well, one of our, one of our, our bigger in, investors is someone who fully believes in what we're doing mission wise with connecting the veterans programs up with forces and, and forces up with the veterans programs and getting that message out across the country and that they feel that that work just that just simply being able to get that message out there is as important as you know if it, if they were giving to a nonprofit that was was running a program just educating people that these programs are out there is really important and that's and we do that just simply by doing what we do being who we are tell be telling these stories another believes in get making sure that the message on the Mustang steep keeps getting told. And we do, we do that all the time because that's just part of a so lot there are of people our story. Out there who, who are willing to invest, who share the same concerns and passions, uh, yes. mental health as you, how do you find these people? Do, would you say that someone who they is find us. right? That's what I was going to ask you. So if, if someone again, is listening to this and says, Oh gosh, you're right. I'd like to do this thing. I, I have this cause. I would like to do a festival around this cause. How do I find, do I go knock on doors or is it more, you just got to start doing it and then people notice. Just do it. One, somebody asked me about this in an, in an interview and because when we started this, I, all I wanted to do was to have people see your documentary. I didn't care how I was going to do it. I didn't care what it took. I wanted people to see. So I was lucky. I had a friend who owned a theater. But unless I ask him, your your film isn't going to magically appear there. I had to go and talk to him and, and get him to let me use that theater. Thank God Ron was as gracious as he was because that's how the first festival got off the ground it, and ran for a whole weekend in a, in a beautiful theater with an amazing technician running the films and me not knowing anything at all about how to run a film festival except for, okay, here's the movies, here's where they're going to start. And the poor guy, I, I wasn't even putting breaks in between the, the films. But, you know, only by the grace of God have I learned how to run a film festival now. But the first, the first year in New York, we did it in Harlem. And did it in a theater where I had three screens and a hundred plus movies. And I said, oh, this will be, be fun. And I, I literally ran myself ragged trying to help the projectionist make sure that everything was starting when it was supposed to. But 
you just have to do it. You just don't sit back and go, oh, well, I can't do it because of this. I can't do it because of that. If you believe in what you're doing and what, what your mission is, I hate to use that word, but it's, I fully believe, I mean, I was so passionate about these are great stories. People need to see them. I'm going to do it just so I just did it. And, and you had, but the reason you, you wanted people to see them was you had already a passion for how the horse can heal, which yeah, I presume. Yeah, I had horses, period. Right. But you, you yourself had been healed by stories of horses as a girl, as well as by actual horses. Yes. But had you not had access to an actual horse and you'd been in that household watching your mother die of sadness those stories about horses still would have carried you a long way through no so yeah from that early early experience to now you fostered a a knowledge that story can heal and story about these healing animals can heal it even more what are the biggest mistakes you've made putting all this together would you say oh my gosh biggest um, mistakes what, what it's the, just not having enough money ever to do it the way I wanted to do it. And I'm not even sure that's a mistake because that's caused, that's created another learning opportunity. That's taught me another way to get something done. So, you know, that maybe ha having partnering with some people that I, you know, you partner with because you're at you you need to have that extra money and to make to make it go you know to to make the film festival go and it's not exactly who you'd want to partner with maybe that and I don't think those were mistakes because through those mistakes through that that having that happen I learned how to deal with other other parts of it so you know I learned a lot about the wild horse people through different things you know i i went into it like pollyanna thinking that if everybody loved mustangs they were all you know everybody was in this la la world loving mustangs not knowing that there were completely one radical group on one side and another rabid radical group on another side you know it's it's right and you find just every issue is that way i basically is the message there that there are no mistakes it's just all learning curve Yes. <laughs> but isn't that life? I would say so, yes. You know, sometimes one can say, does it, does it have to happen with a baseball bat? You know, could we not have it happen with a polite cup of tea and a, <laughs> and a blank check, please? But would we learn that much, Rupert? Would we really learn? Would we be I, where we're at I'm right willing, now? I'm willing to, to, to find out. <laughs> I'm ready. <laughs> Well, I think what also happens too is that when it when it does go smoothly, of course, and it does actually quite a lot of the time, more more, more than we, we give it credit for. I, I think what happens is, of course, because of the negative bias in the human brain, you know, you remember your close encounter with the elephant more than you remember or your peaceful encounters with the elephant because you know, that was the one that made a big impression. But that also yeah. where you learn probably the most about elephants. You know, I'm just saying if, if you're sort of a bushman in the wild, so. I, I, but I very much agree with you that when it seems that one has made terrible mistakes, 
in retrospect, generally, one looks back at those and go, oh, that was actually where I learned the most about how to make right. this really work. I just had to see that extreme of not working in order to understand where the middle point of working was. But at the time, I couldn't quite see that because there was a lot of stress going on. But yeah, I, I, I think I think for listeners, you know, I, I grew up always being told, oh, Rupert, those things you want to do, you can't make a living doing that. You know, you can't make a living through horses. And I remember thinking, but there's this thing called the equine industry. I mean, some someone out there is making a living at it. You know, why, why, why not me? Oh, Rupert, you can't make a living you know, writing books. And I, well, but there's this thing called the publishing industry. I mean, someone is out there fueling that, right? It's not just a bunch of self publishing aristocrats or something. No, there's, there's people out there making a living. I mean, films, the same thing. Well, you can't do that. You know, you got, but, and I, what I realized was that people meant they felt that they couldn't do it and that if you did it, it would make them feel bad about themselves. So they would try to discourage you. And so what you had to do was not listen to that. And I, I was discouraged earlier in my life. And there were a few things I didn't do because people talked me out of it, which I later realized actually I, I could totally have done and, and maybe will at some point. You seem to have been somebody who also has made your living. You made your living through horses. You've made your living. I know, I know your breeding has been successful with the Lusitanos. You've, you've shown successfully. You, you've made a great success of the Equus Festival. And you say, okay, maybe it's not as much money as you would have wanted. But the fact that you even have made it into this 11th year and it's still running and it's carrying you, it, it, it's, that's an extraordinary achievement. I mean, it, it, we, we know that that's not anything to be sniffed at. But a lot of people out there do feel that they can't live free and ride free as you have. And of course, you are making a festival that shows people living free and riding free, literally. What do you think people can do to unlock themselves from that little nagging voice that says they can't? Well, don't you think saying I can't is just uh, your fear? Well, sure. But I mean, fear is a real thing. So what is people? Right, right. It is what, a real thing. What, what is, what, how, how in, in, in your, do you feel people can create a practice where they can begin to climb out of that hole? You, you, you got, you've got to, I, I just went through this last year and I know you went through the same thing too when you went and I, and I didn't get a chance to ask you before. But like when I, when I broke my leg last year, that first time, well, first of all, uh, having to go almost a month before I could go back into even maybe a month and a half before I could even go back into a barn and see my horse was like the worst part of my life that I can remember. But that the first time I sat back on my horse after I... I had got my boot off and I could put, I mean, the, the cast and could put my, even I, I had, I didn't even have a riding boot on yet. I was able to wear my barn fog to sit back on my horse. I don't want to say it was terrifying, but it was, I was like, oh my God, am I really going to do this again? Because the going through the, the, the pain I had, mine was a compound spiral fracture completely out my ankle. So it was a, it was pretty painful. So I, your your mind is saying, don't I, you don't want to go back through that again? But my I I was just saying, I am going to do this. I'm just going to do it. I need 
I cannot go the rest of my life not riding my horse. I can't do that. It's too much of a part of me. And so I just did it. And even if the first time was just going and walking around the indoor arena and getting back off of that horse again. And this was my white stallion who I had just gelded maybe three, four months before, a couple months before I had my accident. So he was still feeling all testosterone. Still a lot of horse, yeah. Still a lot of horse. And even though he's 22 now and he's still a lot of horse. Yeah. But I sat on him and I did it and I, and I accomplished that. And we came out of COVID and I went, are we going to do the festival again live? But we went ahead and we just did it. And I had that last year when we, because we did it in Sacramento, California, because that's where we ended the ride in, and, I, and everybody was in California. I had a, an author come in from, oh my God, oh my gosh, fin, not Finland, Nor, Norway, I think, came in, no, Sweden. She came in from Sweden, who uh, came all the way there, lost her luggage at the thing, but she just did it. She just came to the festival because she was so excited about coming and being part of it. If you had, if you just do it, just take that first step and just do it, it makes doing it easier every t- the next time you do something. It's, it's what it comes down to. I mean, one could say, feel the fear and do it anyway, but does it come down to basically small steps? The idea that, that and, and what can seem like a small step to one person feels like a giant step for somebody else. I, I remember when I was younger having less patience. That's like, oh, you know, someone's just get over themselves. And then someone said, well, Rue, for example, you're terrified of eggs. I know that it, you will rather leap out of a first floor window than first floor in the European sense, the third floor window than, than eat an egg that, you know, someone pulls an egg on you, you know, you, you, you have, you have Achilles heels that you don't think you have. What if I said to you, just get over it, just eat that egg. And you're sitting there overcome with nausea and suddenly you're like a little autistic child going, I, I actually really am afraid of this, even though it's just an egg, you know, this is not sitting in a riot in South Africa or, you know, other things that have happened to me that I find, I find the egg more scary. I do. And someone pointed that out to me and said, what would it take for you to eat that egg? And I was like, you know, actually, that's a really good question because it's become like a phobia. And I suppose if I had to, what well, it'd probably take is you know, extreme hunger, but let's say it wasn't that it would be somehow making friends with the idea of egg, you know what I mean? And somehow runny texture and the stink and all the things that nauseate me about them. What would I need to do to get over them? And I realized, ah, yes, to many people, that seems completely absurd. And they'd say, Rupert, just get over it. And to me, that's this huge thing, even though one has faced things in one's life that are obviously much more real. And uh, well, what would it take? And I thought, well, I suppose it would, it would take breaking what looks like one step for somebody else down into as many steps as it would take for each one of those steps to not feel like a big step, which could probably be a hundred or a thousand steps, which somebody else would roll their eyes at. But for me or someone with a phobia about spiders or somebody with can't get out of bed because of depression, you know, and I've been there, I know you've probably been there. It, it's that first 
half step, that quarter step, that eighth of a step, that sixteenth of a step, that what's the fraction that's doable now today? And can that? Because I I, I, I I think what happens is that we all judge ourselves by other people, and we think, let's say we want to write a book, or you want to do a festival. We say, well, there's Lisa Dearson; she's done a festival, or this person over there; they've written a book. And you've already projected yourself in your mind to the finished festival, the finished book. And then there's that moment of euphoria. And then there's that, ah, oh, but I can't, because I don't know how to do that. I don't understand the mechanisms. And you would say, just do it or just take, but really then you said, just take the first step. You know, so is it about finding that first step or that first half step or that first fraction of a step? Is that really what it is? Yeah, I think yes. For me, it would be eating bugs. Like, <laughs> see, no problem with that for me. It munch bugs all day. Yeah, yeah totally. Oh, no, they haven't got. I, they're I, not I presenting eggs. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, no, I. Yeah, you just have to. It. It doesn't matter how big the step. It's just as long as the step is forward. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I forget which is it Lao Tzu or is it Confucius or. It's one of those, it says, never mock somebody who is engaged in an endeavor in which they're moving forward, no matter how incrementally or in, no right. matter how tiny a fashion, they are more courageous than you, your mockery. And they'll probably get there and, or they'll set into process, into motion, a process where even after their death, that thing will probably be achieved. I guess, would you say that by showcasing these stories about people taking these journeys because it's it it seems that the the films that you've listed as the sort of masses that they all seem to be journeys pilgrimages really to wellness would you say that really what you're doing is you're showing people taking those steps there's a first step isn't there the first they mount the horse and they take a step right right yes yes the, the journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. Mm -hmm. Single, single footprint. And I guess we can then follow the traces of the hoof prints of those who've gone before us right. and find our way. You, okay. So I just want to, to go back over some of these films that you've said that other oh, must sees. You, you, you mentioned riding my way back. Mm -hmm. You mentioned healing horses. Mm -hmm. You mentioned the long rider. Yes. And you mentioned unbranded. Unbranded is available pretty much so globally. I think I have healing horses up on the Equus Film Festival YouTube channel or on our on the Equus Film channel. How do people uh, access the Equus Film channel again? You can, there's a link right on the front of our, it's equusfilmfestival.net, which is our website. There's a, a link right on the front page. Equusfilmfestival.net. Yeah. Yeah. And that takes you right to the, to the film channel and people can subscribe. And then the Felipe's film, The Long Rider is under, it's out for distribution right now. So I'm not sure if they've got their distribution in place so 
The only place that anybody can see that is when it, we're doing one of our tour stops with with the film festival. So we, I think we will be screening that in or Westcliff, Colorado in September. But the other film that we were talking about, too, was Lady Longrider, which is the story about Bernice Endy. Lady Longrider, right. Yeah. And, and that film, that filmmaker has available, I think if you just type in Lady Longrider, Bernice Endy, it'll pop up where to, to go to see that. Because that's available pay-per-view on her, on the, the filmmaker's own channel. Okay. And that's a, it's a beautiful documentary. It's, it's very well done. It's at that time when she filmed that Bernice was down riding two Hanslinger horses across the, around the country, up and down the, the continent, so to speak. And so we had, we had a documentary, a man, a mule, America, a man, which, a mule, a mule, America. America. And we'll see um, that. Pardon me. I'm just, I'm trying to remember the name of these. This film was probably eight, seven or eight years ago, but he wrote, he followed because at one point before the continent of the United States was actually a continent, it was a lost sea. There was a lost sea in the middle. And Bernie Hubert is the, is the filmmaker's name. And Bernie had a mule in a in a little wet with a little wagon like the wagon was only big enough that he could sleep in and he followed that whole trail all the way down from canada to mexico to the mexico border with his a man and a mule across america just uh, the story exploring the lost ocean the lost prehistoric mm-hmm. ocean yes can did you just find that up? On what, what can, can people find that on equusfilmfestival.net? I, I know he has, he hasn't got that back out yet. It's getting re-released this year into the film festival. It was on PBS a few times, okay. but it, he's, he's updating it and it'll be in this year's film festival again. Fantastic. Now so, you, you said that the film festival is happening live in Westcliff, Colorado. Well, we have one. That'll be in Westcliff, Colorado, that it will be a big Mustang Summit. Um, That's the Mustang the Summit. Okay. Yeah. And, the, and we will be screening films there. So uh, that's when is that? Yeah. September 29th and 30th and then October 1st. And then our main festival is in Sacramento, California, November 17th, 18th and 19th. Okay. Um, where is Westcliff? Colorado. Westcliff is on the southeast side of the Rocky Mountains. So it's south, directly south, about two and a half hour drive from Denver. So maybe three hours. Around Denver. Pueblo area, would you say? Pueblo, Colorado Springs area. Okay. Okay. That's the south, Mustang south Summit. South of Colorado. So Mustang yeah, yeah, Summit so is the 27th. So it's 7th September to October 1st, basically. Yep. In Westcliff, Colorado. And then the film festival itself and the general arts festival will be in Sacramento. November, again, give us the dates. 17th, 18th, and 19th. 17th, 18th, and 19th. And they can get all this information on equusfilmfestival.net? Yes, on the website. Okay. If somebody has an equine arts project, 
how do they submit to your festival? They can they reach your- out to, to me via email or they can go to the website or reach out on our Facebook page. But our website has applications for the artists. It has applications for filmmakers. It has applications for the podcasters and for the authors. Perfect. So all of those applications are available right on the front page of the website. What is the email address that people want to get through to you? It's lisa at equusfilmfestival.net. L-I-S-A, Lisa. Yes, at Equus. E-Q-U-U-S, F-I-L-M, Festival, F-E-S-T-I-V-A-L dot net. Dot net. Lisa at equusfilmfestival.net. Well, hopefully some of the listeners will be submitting some of their stuff. You guys should remember, take that step. If you've got a, if you've got a project, Lisa's one of the nicest people in the world. She's not going to write you a letter back saying you suck. So. And if it doesn't make it in, into the festival, she'll have advice for you about what to well, do. So, And if I look behind me, there's at least 300 books in the festival that I have on shelves just behind me. So that have been entered over the past couple of years. And uh, even if something doesn't make it in, what are your words of encouragement to people? Because you know, th- th- this happened to me you know, when I was submitting stuff, submitting books, submitting films. It wasn't always successful. People didn't always take it, but it didn't mean, I didn't take that as meaning that I should stop submitting. Uh, right. What's, what's your word of advice for people who are going through that process where they're sort of laying their baby, their work on the line for acceptance or rejection? Well, I do that every single time I Put it, start, have another festival. I'm putting it out there for people to either like it or dislike it. But the what I can tell people is, first of all, if you've written something or made a piece of artwork or created a film about something that you're passionate about, somebody out there is going to acknowledge it. And it maybe you're just sending it to somebody who doesn't understand what you're trying to tell them. And that mean, doesn't mean anything. That means just simply the person you sent it to wasn't the right person to just keep trying, keep sending it. I mean, you know what it's like to keep sending in a manuscript and, and being told no. Yeah. So you just keep trying and keep at it. Most, by the way, most good books, most good films were turned down by quite a few people before they found their homes. And uh, it's easy to forget that, you know, music to, you know, bands that seem to come out of nowhere, you know, and then they get interviewed and like, actually, no, we were gigging for about 20 years. It's just that we started in middle school (laughs) before we had any kind of break. I I agree with you. It's, it's to keep putting one foot in front of the other thing. Don't give up whether your dream is to have the festival or whether your dream is to put together pieces of art that get shown in festivals or both. The art of story and the, and, and the world, it's interesting. I feel that the world never runs out of the need for story. Oh my gosh, no. There's always another story. There's all, someone, every single living human being has a story. Everybody has their story. Everyone has a story. Yeah. Everybody does. It's, it's, and, and I think you become an adult when you realize that 
everybody has a story and you need to give everybody kind of time to tell their story. Mm. You know, when it, when you figure out, oh, wow, it's not just about, I'm not special. I'm just one more story. Yeah. Yeah. And yet each story is completely unique. Mm-hmm. It is. And story is healing if it's given the chance to be. I agree. Mm-hmm. Well, Lisa, thank you for coming on and turning us on to the healing power of story. Thank you. <laughs> Letting the listeners know that Equus Film Festival exists. I would thank you. Really encourage you if you're listening and you're not into horses, check it out anyway, because you don't need to be horsey to appreciate a good story. And you don't need to be horsey to appreciate a story about what was it that you said sentient, that sentient beings, the human relationship with sentient beings is important for human health. Maybe there'll be something to be learned. I hope to catch up with you at one of the festivals. It's been a long time since I was there and it's sort of given me a bit of a kick in the pants to, to, <laughs> to, to, to get to it again, actually. So I, I, I would love to. So maybe we'll see some of the listeners there. Any, any parting words before we, before we close, Lisa? Well, anybody who wants to, to do it and has a dream to do it, get out there and do it. Yeah. Everybody want the world is waiting for your story. It's very true. And it doesn't matter. I, I, you know, people say, well, who'd be interested in my story? It doesn't matter if it's only one person. I remember right. when I was first trying to raise money for the human rights work that I used to do. And it started with <laughs> an event I put together to which five people showed up. Yeah. But, but you changed those five people saw it, Rupert. Well, what happened was one of those five people went and spoke to someone and I, right. I got a phone call three months later from someone saying, you don't know who I am, but I've been researching this thing that you're talking about. And yes, I see this is a good cause and I'm going to back it. and do it. So never think that it's wasted time. Never think that any audience right. is too small. I agree with you, Lisa, get out there and do it. Get out there and tell the story, tell the story. Look at what happened because of your story. You know, I mean, this is why, this is why this festival exists because I was motivated by your story. Well, you're very kind. It seems to me though, that really what happened was perhaps my story was a catalyst for that, that little girl who had, had discovered the healing power of story decades before where she needed that healing in that house with, that had had that tragedy and so I'm honored if my story was a catalyst in that, but I do know from what you said that you'd have done it anyway. And that's, and that's a wonderful thing. So I'm honored to be the catalyst in what would have in an avalanche <laughs> that would have happened regardless because you're, 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 you're a, a, a force of nature, Lisa. And by the way, if you're interested in the Lusitano horse and you jolly well should be because they're the best riding horse on the planet. I'm sorry, but they are. You should check out Lisa it, as, a, as a breeder. She, the horses she's producing are, are wonderful. But I'll, I'll let you find that through Google, Lisa Dearson. Well, and, and any of those people out there that want to find that, that don't have pockets full of money and want an amazing horse, the American Mustang horse, because of the Siberian yes, highs or 
that moves the tunnel horse to the Mustang versus Iberian ties, because now we found through all the DNA research that every horse on the planet originated on the North American plateau. So actually our Lusitano horses are descendants of the original Mustang horses. And when those horses went off over the Bering Straits and came back around and went to the Andalusian and, and Iberian Peninsula and became Spanish horses, they were reintroduced when the Spaniards came to Mexico and con- tried to conquer Mexico. That's how the American Mustang horse got reintrodu- reintroduced with the Spanish blood. Mm. And that's why they thrive on the North American plateau because they're back home. I mean, there's an amazing documentary called Return of the Horse. And I'll send you the name. Sharon Elashar was that filmmaker. And that is on the Equus Film Channel. Return it's of, one the of the Horse. Return of the Horse. Everybody that's a horse person should watch that. It's very, very, very good. It was financed by the Spanish Horse Foundation and or the Spanish Mustang Foundation. And it's it's a beautifully well-made documentary about the origin through DNA research of Equus Cabalas. I'm just Googling it now. Return of the Horse. And it's Sharon. I think it's S H A R R O N or Alashar was the uh, filmmaker. Oh, okay. So I'm, I'm on imdb.com. Return of the Horse is a highly researched scientific and historical documentary about the North American native horse spanning over 57 million years. This documentary explores the science and history of the modern horse, its evolution in prehistoric America, and then return in the historical period with the Spaniards in the 15th century, the impact on Native Americans, and finally, the Euro-American relationship with the wild horse from establishment of America till today. That sounds like a must-watch. It Um, is, and you can watch it on the Equus Film Channel. (laughs) Okay, I will be there. Also, what you say about Mustangs is true. My son, Rowan, I still maintain a horse for him, and that horse is a Mustang. Oh, Rupert, you and I need to talk further about that, okay? After okay. this, okay, yeah, no, I've, I'm, I'm absolutely sold on the Mustang as a, as a therapeutic yeah. as well as a riding horse because there's a, there's a level of intelligence in there that is, it's not that all horses aren't, but yes, you and I both know that there's, there's something extra there, yeah, problem solving abilities and so on. Okay, well, Lisa, it's been, it's been a treat. Thank you. It's, it's okay. Thank you. It's been an inspiration. Those of you who don't know now that Equa, who didn't know that Equus Film Festival exists, now you do. So get online or go to it. Thank you for creating it, Lisa. Thank you for being part of it and having me on your show, Rupert. Well, I hope you'll come on again. uh, I will, whenever you need me. Well, maybe what we could do, maybe what we should do is we should do a podcast from, that's what we should do. We should do a podcast. That would be fun. From from the film. Yes. And then we can. And then you could meet a whole bunch of interesting people who would be there and podcast with them. That would be a very good thing. We could interview them right there. Okay. Yes. Talk about right that. There. Okay. Something to look yep. forward to. Yep. All right. Lot of fun. We'll talk. Okay. Nice okay. seeing you again. Likewise. Okay. Talk to you soon. next time. Bye. Much love. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Join our website, newtrailslearning.com, to check out our online courses and live workshops in Horseboy Method, Movement Method, and Athena. These evidence-based programs have helped children, veterans, and people dealing with trauma 
around the world. We also offer a horse training program and self-care program for riders on longridehome.com. These include easy-to-do online courses and tutorials that bring you and your horse joy. For an overview of all shows and programs, go to rupertisaacson.com. See you on the next show. And please remember to press subscribe and share.